Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to today's show. Today, we have Matt Zimmerman, the CEO and co-founder of BeastCode. Matt, how are you? Good, Rob. How are you doing? Really good. It's great having you on the show. We've worked together for a number of years. And, and even though I'm familiar, I'd love it if you kind of gave some overview and background on, you know, what is, what is BeastCode? Yeah. Yeah, we have probably met one time in person. Other than that, the last two or three years, we've been working virtually together. A lot of phone calls that we worked on together, both when you were in the government and now when you're the CEO of Defense Unicorns. Beast code. We do quite a lot of buzzwords, but really what it comes down to is we're a data aggregation company. We go to different organizations and we learn about how their different business logistics goes and we understand the data sources they have. We bring that together into a 3D interactive representation, whatever their platform is. It could be a data center, a submarine, an aircraft, and everything's fully interactive. So you could click on a valve, open and close it, see what the downstream effects are click on that same valve and access all the supply data that you would need, all the technical manuals. And we can link training, parametric data, SE, SysML type stuff, and really becomes like a single point of entry to access and do the things that you need on a day-to-day. So how did you guys first get started with defense work? Yeah, so we began at a, a medium-sized defense contractor. We were doing modeling and simulation work. But it was super corporate. It was all about the P&L. It was all about the next contract. And really not so much about innovation, having the best technology available for your employees. So we thought it would be a cool thing to start a defense company that was more Silicon Valley-ish, where we were focused on innovation and technology. We would have great devices for people to work on and that we wouldn't put so much of a focus on the, the P&L and the profit margins, and we'd really just focus on what, what would be a cool thing to do that would help the warfighter and just go after that because all those other things, that'll just follow. And you talk a little bit about how you guys are a data aggregation company that develops 3D representation. You know, a lot of people in the community, they probably refer to that as like a, a digital twin, or at least I, you know, assume they would. Why is that so foundationally important for the Department of Defense and the federal government? The biggest issue we run into with every organization, not just DOD, is the data. DOD has millions, tens of millions of different data points out there, but they're not linked together. They're not easy to access. If you're the warfighter or you're working in the government to find what you're looking for, you probably have to go into five different systems. And, and that's that's knowing that you know what systems to look in and you have the logins to it. Your password's probably expired on a bunch of them. It just, it becomes really difficult. We, we look at use cases where, think of like a shipyard where you work in an office, you get a call from the ship and they say, hey, I need you to come take a look at this. I got a problem. So you walk down there, takes you 10, 20 minutes to get there. You figure out what's going on, walk back to your office so you can actually go access again. That information that's probably in five different systems and then go back to the ship to actually go fix it. Now you spent hours when you could have just had that information on a tablet. And I think like 
me, I, I'm a millennial. So like I grew up with Google. You can just Google search stuff and you get all the answers that you need and you can't do that in the DOD. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you, you know, from, from the small business side. We, we've had a lot of different guests on the show that talked about, you know, what it takes to innovate as, you know, an active duty service member or government civilian. I'd love to hear from you, you know, some of the challenges that you guys have to overcome in order to innovate from the commercial side. Yeah, I think being on our side of it, you, you have to have like the revenue stream going to be able to have the employees that can focus on doing cool things. It took many, many years where we were just taking contracts so that we'd make revenue so we could continue growing. And not so much like it would be a contract that's focused on our core capabilities. It was the software engineering. We knew we could do it and make money so we could get to the, the next thing. Working with the, with the government, you, you have to understand the federal acquisition cycle. And like anytime we get like a new product manager or business development person coming into our organization, they're always like, I'm going to get that contract like next month. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to win this and we're going to start working on it. And that's just not true. Like. We see that from the time you have the first discussion with a customer, it's likely going to be three years before they're actually funding what it is. And you're going to go in that meeting. They're going to love what you, what you have. They're going to need the technology. But, well, and they might even have the funding, but they might not have the funding vehicle. And that's, that's usually the, the toughest piece. Over the years, we, we now have multiple contract vehicles that we can use. We've built multiple relationships with OEMs that can have us as a subcontractor and take that funding and get there. But when you have one or two contracts, it makes it very difficult to be able to, to innovate and build the things you want. And this is a company that's bootstrapped, right? Because you could go the venture capital route and get that money and go build those things. But Beast Code is privately owned. We've never taken capital from any, any BC type organizations. So every contract we've had, we made a little profit and we reinvested that in the company and we've taken it from seven people to over 180 now. Wow, that's 180. That's that's an incredible number, an amazing amount of growth in a small period of time. Imagining waiting three years to, to kind of start working on the problem that you've been working on sounds incredibly frustrating. I, I did just see that you guys won a phase three contract with GSA. So, so congratulations. Can you talk a little bit about how that direct relationship with the government changes things and how you might, you know, things you might be able to do with a direct relationship that you maybe can't do as a subcontractor? Absolutely. We are on contracts today where the prime kind of governs all the things that you're going to work on. And even though we are that innovative company that likes to work side by side with the, the customer, the warfight government, figure out what it is. A lot of times it really ends up being kind of a waterfall project because that's kind of what the prime wants you to do. It's traditional program management, a Gantt chart of everything you're going to do over the next 12 months. And when you deviate from that, it, it's looked at as a bad thing. It's a good thing that you're delivering what the warfighter actually needs. So now having the direct contractor IDIQ, not only can the customer come straight to us, so it saves them some money by not having to do pass-through money to like a, a prime. It saves time by not having to wait months and months and months to get it under contract. They can come straight to us and we, we kind of control that timeline side by side with GSA. But then we can do the things we want because we don't have a middle layer in there that's dictating 
what it is that we're going to do on because ultimately when you're the sub and there's a prime you do what the prime says because it's their contract they are ultimately the ones that are delivering that capability and they get to make the, the final decision i'd love to hear you know maybe don't name names or, or maybe you do i would love to hear your worst subcontractor experience with a large defense prime I think we've probably run into almost every type of scenario you could think of over the last nine years. Everything from having a, a prime that doesn't tell the customer that you have this cool East Coast company developing stuff. They take credit to it, to the primes that are going to dictate what you do on the day-to-day, -day, the primes that don't even want to pay you, that's legal or not. That, that I guess that's another struggle, right? You have these net terms for your purchase orders. That's not always when you get paid. So that's obviously some of the bad things about working with the government. I'd love to hear in your own words, what are some of the programs and projects in the government that, that are really working for small businesses? Yeah, right now the, the submarine community is our biggest fans. And Rob, I know that you and I are working together with the, the same customer over there, but they've been incredibly forward leading. They're the reason that both Defense Unicorns and Beast Coat has a IDIQ that they can go directly to. And combined, those IDIQs are nearly a billion dollars, which is pretty incredible for small businesses. But beyond that, they don't think in terms of requirements. They think in terms of what is it that we need? And potentially, we don't know 100% what it is that we need. And they give us the freedom to go talk to people and understand that. They also allow us to fail, and that's okay. I talked about before, like you got the Gantt chart and if something goes wrong or something deviates, it's a bad thing, but not necessarily so with this customer. They understand that things are going to change. And in many cases, we want things to change. We want things to be different as we learn more. And a failure isn't looked at as, hey, we've done something wrong. The failure is, yeah, we made a mistake, but we learned from it and we can grow from it. Growing from, you know, a really small organization of just really a, a couple people who are really just passionate about delivering, you know, mission outcomes into an organization that's, that's now 180 people. Can you talk through a little bit about like some of your biggest lessons learned across, you know, your own growth as a CEO of a small startup? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, you know, for me as like a defense CEO, it's really just like staying somewhere in the middle, right? Cause it's very easy to go get really excited about this new contract or this new technology that you're developing or the win that you had for the, but it's also really easy to get down about, oh, that didn't go the way I wanted it to, or it's taken a long time to get that contract. And those like emotions, those can happen like multiple times a day. You could have a win and like five minutes later, get punched in the face and like, you just got to remain constant and not, and not get too excited and not get too down and just keep, keep moving forward because it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I think, also, I think also like, I had one of our customers ask us a couple months ago about how how are we going to maintain like the credibility of East Code? Like we have, we do things for great prices. We do them very quick and we, we deliver them at very high quality. And like you said, Rob, very easy to do when you're five or 10 people because you're wearing all the hats. You're the one that's selling the capabilities. You're the one that's coding them and you're the one that's delivering them. So it's very easy to to, to provide the level of quality that you want. But when you get to... 180 people and beyond, it becomes a little bit more challenging. And I had answered that customer saying, well, we're, we're hiring a lot of really good people. 
or yet, you know, good leaders in place, good managers that are going to help manage that growth. And I think that's only part of the equation. I think the other piece is defining the processes. Like what was the winning recipe when we were 10 to 20 people? What was it that made us special and documenting that and teaching everybody else what it was that we did? Because nobody wants to do a bad job. Everybody wants to do things. But I think by having the right people with the right processes is what's going to allow us to continue to scale. So why do you and BeastCode decide to focus on defense customers? Like, what is it about the defense market or the problems you're working on that, that, you know, really makes you guys want to be a defense-centric software company? Part of it's the mission. This is a really cool mission. Like, we talk about, like, submarines, and we're putting software on a weapon system that's going to be at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean for months at a time. And has to continue operating. Like, like when you're in the commercial industry, like we're just going to deploy it in the cloud, and that's like the easy solution. Like this is like a cloud under the solution that you somehow have to keep up to date, and it has to support you know one of our, our greatest missions. Also, just from the personal standpoint, I'm a military brat. My father was Air Force. I had a lot of Air Force family members. So, growing up and moving around and hanging out with the warfighter every day was very special to me. What are some of the things for the folks in the government that, that might be listening? What are some of the things that the government can do to make it easier to work with small businesses across the defense community? I think it's just being honest. I think it's really easy sometimes when you're on the government side to hide your cards. You don't want to talk about your level of funding. You don't want to talk about what your timeline is. And in many cases, it's looked as a bad thing. Like we're not supposed to be close with the contracting community. But I think any of the relationships that we have where we have an open customer that is able to say, hey, I got X amount of dollars. We need it in this time frame, whether it's a, a long time frame or, hey, I need it like, tomorrow. That's important to us as well. And, and just talking through it and, and being able to communicate with person on the other side, is, that's important. Anytime that it's kind of like that negotiation of like it's you know, we're against each other, it's the government versus the contractors. So it's never a good situation. That makes it really, really tough. We pride ourselves on saying we're your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. We want to work with everybody. We're not here to screw anybody over. And one of our, our company values really just talks about partnerships. When we sign up to do a project or sign a purchase order, that's, it's not just money to us. That's a partnership with whoever we're building. And we expect we can work side by side with them to truly create what it is that they want. You can only get to that nirvana state if we're going to communicate together and be honest with each other, whether it's good or bad. I mean, if there's bad things that are happening, if you're on with something, calling us and letting us know that's just as important. Why is, why is being honest so important? Can you discuss, you know, a little bit about some of the difficulties when, when that type of approach is pursued? Well, yeah, let's just think about it from like, if something, if the project's not going the way that the government wants it to. Right. And perhaps they're just thinking, well, this isn't working out. We're going to have to shut this down and move on to the other thing. But from our standpoint, like we don't know that there's like some type of a problem going on. We don't know how to resolve it. And it could just be something really small that we can easily tweak on our end and it's not a problem anymore. Now, there's been a ton of changes across the tech community in just a short period of time. Probably nothing more significant than ChatGPT and what AI has done across the commercial side of the house. How do you see those technologies being implemented and adopted 
within the defense community? It's slowly, right? You have the communities that are all about new technology, but anything new requires an authority to operate. So it's always really difficult whether this kind of goes back to, hey, I've got money. I like what you're doing. The contract vehicle is a part of it. But then there's this authority to operate piece where even if we bought it, it doesn't mean we can actually deploy it and use it. So there are cool services like Rob, you know, with Platform One, you stood that where you can get a continuous authority to operate. And that's a, that's perfect. We were, we worked together and we were able to get our Beast Core software accredited, I think in three days. And now parts of the Navy are using reciprocity from that and being able to adopt it. But the traditional process of, hey, I've got this new thing that that can, months would be fast. I mean, we, our original piece of software that we built took four years to get its ATO. And that was a standalone system that didn't have any network connectivity, wasn't in the cloud. Um, so imagining something that is cloud-based, that connects to a lot of things, you know, however useful it might be, can be very difficult to be able to, to get into the DoD. And then you have the bad stories. I mean, even I, I'll personally say ChatGPT scares me as a business owner, right? Because it's this cloud thing that you can put data in and it gives you answers back, which is really, really cool. You have to kind of, you know, take it for what it's worth. It is really great. And it does give a lot of answers. But like on the flip side, what if somebody puts something like CUI or something that's sensitive in nature up in that environment? You read the stories every day of proprietary information is going up there and is lost. It, it, it's scary in some ways as a business owner, because if that happens, it's going to avoid our credibility. And that's going to look bad on the government side. And, and that could be the, the loss of business for us. So as a data aggregation company and seeing this involvement of the, this entire community around AI growing, how do you see, you know, data aggregation, digital twins and artificial intelligence all kind of working together over the course of several years, especially within the federal government and the department of defense? I think you need all of them. I think like years ago, like I would have told you, send all your 3D models to Beast Code and we'll, we'll, we'll put them together. We'll manage your data by hand. But like today, you don't have to do that because you have these types of applications like AI that can, can manipulate your data and get it in the right format and keep all those things updated. You can use the AI to be able to even analyze like sensor readings and parametric data to predict when there's different types of faults that are going to occur. Use it to make design changes. And, and you read all the articles today of just like the manufacturing business or the shipyards and how they're starting to integrate those technologies into what they're doing. It's just going to make it easier for manual processes that people were doing, like the places that still use like pencil and paper. It's like a quantum leap to go to something like AI that makes those decisions for you. And that as a human, it just makes your job easier so you can go focus on other things, but that, that now the AI is taking care of for you. I read a recent article that talked about how the defense industrial base was going through this transformation to where, you know, instead of having these hardware centric prime contractors, these more software centric quote software primes were going to really become the new defense primes of the next generation as these weapon systems become much more digitally focused. You know, I was curious your thoughts on that. What is the, you know, do you actually see? that trend or do you actually see the current defense primes really evolving and changing over time 
personal opinion, I, I think the big primes, they are focused on the hardware stuff. They build the missiles, the planes, they're the ones that are welding steel. But I think it's maybe the medium, the smaller businesses that can focus on software. And what I always tell, like we, we get a lot of like middle schoolers and high schoolers that come by Peace Code to learn about software engineering. What I always tell them, it's the cool thing. You can just download everything that you need to get started. You don't have to go buy a bunch of steel or a bunch of parts and put them all together and then potentially mess it up and have to go buy more stuff. Like you can just download, start coding. When something's wrong, you change it, you recompile and you have the next iteration of it. I think like from a defense standpoint, if I was to say, hey, we're going to go build weapon systems, it's just not realistic. We don't have the capital to do that. We don't have the, the trades to, but to say, hey, we're going to go develop the code for this weapon system over here, that's, that is actually realistic because we know how to do that. We know how to manage code. We have all the best practices and it, we can integrate with a bigger prime to, to leverage what we're both really good at. So where do you see Beast Code really heading over the next five to 10 years? So we've really been pushing to be a product company. Right now, we're all services, so nearly all 180 people have a charge code and we're on a, a billable contract supporting in some way. But over the last four years now, we've been building B-Score, like I talked about. We want to get that to a point where it can integrate with industry-leading technologies. Think of something like a, a product lifecycle management tool where the DoD is adopting that. Commercial industry has had those tools, anybody in manufacturing. They're storing all their information in PLM. And that's all the data that we need as an organization to create the environments that we're building manually today. So as the DOD grows and adopts those technologies, it enables us to say, hey, you could just buy this license and this integration, and it's going to work out of the box. Uh, and that enables us to then not focus so much on direct support for integrating into all these customized environments and really focusing on Beast Core product and adding new features that are going to be even more beneficial to the user. So five years from now, our intent is to continue having the services piece because that's where we're also getting a lot of really good ideas. That's where we're working side by side with the warfighter and the government and our other customers to understand what type of technologies they're working on and what their problem sets are. Um, but then we can filter those things back into our Beast Core product, which is a licensable. So we'd like to be a product-based company. What recommendations do you have for folks who might be looking at starting their own small business and, and potentially working with the Department of Defense or the federal government, or, or maybe they already own a small business and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, actually support mission customers? You got to be persistent. We had the same customer for four years, five years before we really branched out and, and we're seeing more growth. And that just came with like knocking on so many doors to talk to so many different people. And again, they, they may love your technology. They might have the funding, but they might not be able to get that funding to you. But it, it was years of kind of the grind of, of talking, talking, talking to be able to get the next customer. And for us, it was really word of mouth. We did a really good job on the first contract. And even though it was multiple years of work, they, they had no problem introducing us to new people and telling them how it was beneficial. And that just kind of grows exponentially over time as you have more customers using your software and having them talk about how great your you, service you're providing. So, I mean, really, I mean, anyone that's getting into it, you're going to have to be persistent because there is no easy button. There is no website or form you can fill out that's going to give you a government contract. There's sibbers and, and setters. That's a good way to get in. But even that is a 
can, can be a multi-year process. Rob, we were, you, you were a great mentor helping me with some of that early on. We did a first phase one Sibber we did, it was rejected for, we didn't get any feedback on it. So we don't know exactly why it was rejected, but we did a second one about six months later when it was open again, when that one got in. So then we had three to six months of work there, put in for a phase two, and that was rejected. But working closely with one of our other customers, they took it to a phase three and that was a success. But that whole timeline of Sibber phase one to phase three, again, multi-year process. There, there is no easy button with federal acquisitions. That, that's definitely something I want to harp on from the government to industry side. Can you talk a little bit about the impacts of not receiving feedback? And, you know, what, why is that such a big deal for small businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the feedback's really important because we don't know, using that phase one that we got rejected on, I don't know if it was that they didn't like the technology or that the need wasn't there, or maybe we just didn't use the right font size and we got rejected because of that. And it, had we understood that, you know, when we go back to do the next iteration, we're not going to make that mistake again. So having the feedback is, is invaluable. On the international stage, there's a lot of evolving, moving pieces between, you know, things that are going on between Russia and the Ukraine, as well as out in the Pacific with, with China, you know, based upon, you know, your own insights and from a technology perspective. Do you believe that the nation and specifically the Department of Defense is, is moving fast enough? No, you can never move fast enough. But I, I think we have all the technology and things that we need to be superior than all of our adversaries. But I think they are rapidly adopting technology at a pace where we could be outpaced in the future. So I think it's important that we continue to look at small businesses. We continue to try new things. And maybe that's the most important thing. Talking about like contract vehicles and authority to operates and all the reasons not to try a new technology, like that could be the reason that we do get outpaced, right? Trying new things. Like we as an organization try new software all the time, new products to see if it's going to give us a competitive edge. It could be a program management tool. It could be a new library for coding, but you could try it for a couple of days and go, oh, that was, and just get rid of it. Or you could try it for a week and go, wow, this is amazing. I wish we had bought this, you know, three months ago. But if you don't try it all, then, then you don't. Know. And I think with an organization as big as the DOD that has so many different problem sets, and there's so many companies out there that are developing great products, we should just give them a shot in, in a safe environment, right? You can't just throw it on a destroyer and let it, you know, connect all the different systems on there. But it becomes very hard even to do some type of a limited deployment or even a, a demo. Talking about like beast code, like we're reliant on customer data. So if you wanted us to build a digital twin aircraft, well, we'd need to get access to some manuals or some 3D models. There might be roadblocks where the OEM hasn't provided that data, or even if just because you don't have a contract, they can't, they can't legally provide that information to you. So there's a whole lot of reasons to do something. But I think going back to your question, Rob, I think to get to the place where we want to be, where we're continuing to, to be superior. We just got to keep trying new things, figuring out what works. What recommendations do you have for government listeners who may want to, you know, find and start working with innovative small businesses? Do you have any recommendations for 
how to how to how to find innovative companies, how to get them on contract quickly, how to how to just in general work with small businesses. That's a good question. I, I don't think there's any easy answer to that because we have a lot of really good partners and it's taken us nine years to find all of them. And some of them are just on a whim. There was a, a company I met called Redshred that does really great work with being able to OCR different documents and structure unstructured data. I met them through an acquaintance at a trade show. And it was just kind of out of the blue that I'd met this person and then six months later, they said, hey, have you ever talked to this company? And we did. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Now, now we're working together on a bunch of different projects. But, you know, that, that just happened from engagement. So when, I guess one of the big things we've been big on this year is going to trade shows so that we Bees Code could engage with different government stakeholders or different organizations that we normally wouldn't get to. I could see that being an important piece of going out to those types of events and, and taking a chance to talk to a few different places. There's also a lot of matchmaking that goes on, but we've not had a ton of success with any of those matchmaking things that are out there. You, you can go and you can talk to companies, you know, rapid blast for 10 or 15 minutes. And I, I, we haven't got any like direct revenue or anything coming out of that. You get to meet a lot of people. And a lot of times you don't get any callbacks. One of the the interesting things going going on within the industry is an overall lack of of talent to to really respond to the tech need, especially once again in the federal and defense space. Can you talk a little bit about the talent management challenges that you've seen, you know, both internal to the government, but also as a small business owner? Yeah, I I'm going to say objectives and key results, OKRs, which a lot of people on LinkedIn are very negative towards, but we adopted OKRs at Beast Code, and one of them was focused on culture and really broke down into professional development. So being able to create, like, what are the different technologies that we believe or different skill sets that we need our workforce to have? And then what are the resources out there that we can get them to take, whether it's a Udemy course or going to a college course or watching a YouTube video that's going to get them the skills that they need to continue progressing? It's very hard to find that unicorn out there that you're looking for, a, you know, a senior level engineer or a senior level manager, but it's much easier to find the junior level person that you can get through the right courses and maybe over a year and a half, get them to that senior level. So for us, it's really been focusing on professional development and coming up with what exactly is it that we need our people to do and how do we get them to that point? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about why culture is so important, not only from your own perspective, but also with the, the mission customers that you're working with on the other side? Yeah. I mean, we talked to plenty of companies that are just suits and you wouldn't want to work with them. I mean, that that's, I, I'll use the word boring, but like when Beast Code comes and we're working with like Navy SEALs, like they're having fun, right? We're having fun. We're excited to be working with the Navy SEALs. They're excited to be working with Beast Code. We identify as like a bunch of nerds that understand the mission and are going to build the things that you need, right? And I, I think a lot of times defense contractors, you get this vision of the suits coming in and we're going to bring you this product and sell it to you as is, and it's probably not what you want. So I think like our culture of like iterating and, and creating the things that you want and being your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, uh, it gets people excited. And, and I mean, I, we, we work with some companies, 
Siemens is one of them that comes to mind. And they come down and they do these introductions. And you get guys that are like, I've been at Siemens for 35 years. And you're like, oh my God, like that's, that's longer than I've been alive. Like that's incredible. You know, just from like a career standpoint, you think of our, like our organizations, Rob, it would be so cool like 40 years from now to have people that have been there like the entire journey and they're going to meetings. But like, I've been at Defense Unicorns for 35 years and you're like, that must be a really great place to work because that's a really, really long time. You mentioned how technology isn't necessarily our problem in, in trying to compete on an international scale, but we do have an adoption issue. As a company that produces technology, can you talk about some of the major hurdles and some of the scar tissues that you have in trying to get your technology fully integrated and adopted? Yeah, certainly. It really comes down to the ATO piece. I mean, we've developed, I, I hate to say it, but we've developed programs that end up just sitting on the shelf that probably would have been really useful to people, but because they didn't have all the right checkboxes, they couldn't actually deploy it. And I think a lot of times, like that process is just unknown by the customer that's purchasing it and the company that's developing the product. And it, I don't really think there is a, a checklist out there. You can just follow and say, yeah, it's, it's good to go. There's usually a waiver that's involved. You know, somebody that has enough authority says, no, go ahead and deploy this. Or you have to get somebody with the authority to say that, yeah, I believe it. You've hit all the checkboxes. You can deploy it. We've had, I talked about our first program taking four years to get the ATO. I, I guess there's like six or seven steps to go through like the RMF process. And we'd get to like step two and then we get a new cyber person because the other person moved on and then you go, well, we didn't like how you did step one. So we're just going to move you back. And then we, okay, not a problem. We'll, we'll update all the documentation, go through it, get to step three. You get a new cyber person because that person moved on. And they're like, ah, this is not how I do it. We're bumping you back. And you got to start all over again. And that's why that process took four years. It's because we kept getting new people that wanted it done in a different way because there was no standard format that they could follow. And if there is a standard format, they don't, they don't know where to find it. As, as a CEO of a small you know, company, you've already talked a little bit about the importance of of, of culture and, and what it means to, to you as an organization, how are you, like, how do you properly define success in order to ensure that you're aligning both your business objectives, what you're trying to accomplish from a culture perspective, as well as, you know, really aligning to, to what the mission customers need? That's a great question. I, I, I talked about OKRs. So, I mean, we could totally look at numbers and go, yeah, we met all these metrics. You could pull your profit and loss and look at the bottom and go, yeah, it was a great year. We did really good. I mean, you can even talk to employees, right? And be like, yeah, they're all really happy. We're doing a good job. But like for me, I talked about Navy SEALs. Like I got to go work with them three months ago and we had developed a digital twin on one of their platforms and we were giving them the actual product and like to see how excited they were about it and like how they were talking about how they were going to deploy it, how they were going to use it and the problems they had today and how this was going to solve it. And then and then like from just like a, a nerdy software standpoint, I'll, I can say for another 30 minutes and, you know, as you guys play with the tablets and play with the software, if you have any questions, I can answer it. Me thinking that like, maybe they'll have trouble with the controls and they like picked up our software and they just started using it. They didn't need any help at all. It was just seamless. And it was just the coolest thing, right? One, working with Navy SEALs, you're supporting a great mission. They're stoked. And the software you wrote, it, it just worked. That's success for me.
what recommendations do you have for folks on the government side who are who are trying to integrate technology more rapidly? You know, what have you seen from their perspective be successful? You know, how can people inside the government do a better job of integrating with commercial tech? So Platform One was one of those great, that was eye-opening for us when you you introduced us and, and showed us what you guys were building over at P1. We're still using that years later to where we can easily release a new piece of software, go through all the scans, and then it's available on a government network for people to access and play with. And it may not be a piece of production software, but just being able to play with it and see that, yeah, it's the right functionality, or even that it's going to work because the you know network speeds and the devices that are out there may not be the greatest, but knowing that you can connect to it and reasonably actually operate that piece of software is really cool. I think anytime you can find an environment like P1, you just have to leverage it. We're finding similar things within the Navy where there are environments where we can deploy applications to. And that's the, that's the environment we're always going to go to. And perhaps even like just working together, just because like the submarine community stood up this network doesn't mean only submarines have to go on that network. The surface community can say, hey, I got this other app. You already have this accredited environment. Can I put my, my piece of software in there too? And that's maybe two more checkboxes instead of going through 200 checkboxes. And I'm going to guess that government to government, they're going to say, yes, absolutely. We want to do the right thing. We want to get software to the warfighters. Absolutely. Use our environment. I think anytime we try to like build, because it's very easy to say, I, I'm going to build this piece of software. I'm going to go build my own cloud over here. I'm going to manage it and do all these things. And that does, there's so much work involved with that. So anytime you can leverage what somebody else has done, you should. And I think, Rob, that goes with kind of your philosophy with all the open source software. Don't, don't, don't rebuild things. That goes for software, that goes with hardware, cloud environments, whatever it is. In talking with a lot of different folks across the community over the last you know, year or two, obviously there's challenges in working with the government. There's a lot of pitfalls, a lot of stumbling blocks. There's a lot of times when working with the government is in general not going well. And I know in some ways you're on the other end of that. You know, you, you guys are a great success story. You're 180 people, but I'm sure you've hit some, you know, pretty low points um, in order to get to where you're at today. I was wondering if you have any like motivational advice to any of the companies that are, that are, you know, going to the grind, trying to work with the federal government, and Department of Defense and, and finding it very challenging. We always say like the biggest thing we're going to work on this year we don't even know what it is, right? So you might be saying, my big thing this year is X contract. And maybe it's not working out. Maybe you've been waiting like nine months, because I've been there before, where you're waiting nine months for a contract to hit and you were relying on that and you're starting to freak out a little bit. And then all of a sudden somebody calls you and they're like, hey, I've got this thing I want you to build. You weren't even thinking about that. And it kind of goes back to my advice of just like kind of staying level-headed, staying in the middle, because those things pop up all the time. The more popular you get, the more it's going to happen. But even when you're, a small, small business, there's going to be people that reach out with those types of opportunities and they're ready to go. So, I mean, it's really just like the, the, the gr working with the government is absolutely a grind where you're going to be following up with people. You're going to be waiting a lot. And there might, you might have to do a, a demonstration 17 times, the same one. And that might be over, you know, multi-year process, but it's going to happen. You know, if you keep waiting, you keep, keep being persistent, you're going to get to where you want to be. 
And don't let the numbers freak you out either. I mean, I've always been really big on that. A lot of people really drill into the finances and then go, oh, it was a bad month or whatever period of time it was. But don't get down on that. I mean, if you really just focus on like what it is that you want to build, I mean, the revenue and things, that is important to keep things going, but it's not the most important thing. You know, if you develop something really, really good, people are going to want to buy that. And at some point they will get it and you'll get to where you want. Now, the, the last question we, we asked everybody who comes onto this podcast, why should people continue to subscribe and, and listen to the show? I think the show is great. I, I think the biggest part is just listening to the people that are coming on that have gone through decades. I mean, you're getting, I don't know how many guests you've had on here, Rob, but you have like centuries worth of knowledge coming through here of just, these are problems that we run into. We've been working with the government for a really long time. This is how we overcame things. And part of it's just knowing. If you're coming into this fresh and, and trying to figure out how the federal government works, it, it is going to take a while. But if you can listen to people that have before and kind of help you guide it, I think the show is a great resource for that. Awesome. Well, I am a huge fan of yours, huge fan of you know Beast Codes, everything you guys are doing. I'll be an avid fan of, you know, watching your guys' progress as you continue to, you know, produce mission outcomes for various customers. Truly an honor, Matt, for having you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I mean, the honor is all mine. I'm glad that we get to work together. I'm glad we got some time to talk on the show. And, yeah, you know, just looking forward to continuing to grow our companies together, man. Thank you. Yeah, and for those people listening, remember to subscribe. And we have a, a number of amazing guests here in the near future. Have a great day. Thanks, guys.